move out front a little bit. Um, I want to talk about a little bit this <coughs> afternoon. I want to share some of the work that I've been doing over the better part of the last 20 years. Um, 10 years as a youth worker right out of college um, in immigrant communities in Chicago, followed by the last 10 years of research particularly with a, a population of young people um, who migrate with their parents and grow up in the United States. Um, so in the early 90s, I had, um, uh, I was at a crossroads of 1992, and I had, my, following the uprising in Los Angeles, I had the chance to teach high school in Roosevelt High School, East Los Angeles. Um, but I had spent seven months prior on a, a school program in Chicago in a neighborhood on the near northwest side of Chicago, largely Mexican neighborhood, Mexican immigrant neighborhood, a port of entry community uh, for Mexican families, but also a, a significant share of, of Polish families. I ended up going to Chicago and I stayed in that same community, uh, this West Town neighborhood for the better part of nine and a half years. So I lived and worked, my, my first job, I was a youth worker a half a block down the street where I lived, and I moved two years later four blocks to, uh, to run a community center. Um, so as I mentioned, a lot of our families were, were migrant families, largely from Mexico, largely undocumented, and had brought their kids with them, and kids were growing up. Um, so in this community center, uh, in my work with the youth, over the years, I've started to notice that a lot of our kids, um, just as their parents, uh, were encountering real issues with their immigration status. Um, I think that this time, early 90s, there was a lot of attention to kind of the struggles of migrant workers, and there was a lot of energy being invested in our community, rightfully so, on workers' rights for undocumented immigrant workers much less was known about their children. But over the years, we started to see, as these kids were growing up, a small group of them was making it all the way to their senior year in high school, wanting to go on, on to college, um, but, but being blocked, there weren't a lot of opportunities. Uh, a larger number of them was hitting dead ends at around 15, 16, 17 years old. When issues of driver's licenses, work permits, um, applying to college came up as a result. Out of this context, I met a young boy named Alex, and I knew Alex for nine years. Um, so Alex was a, one of my uh, youth in my program. Alex was eight years old when I met him, um, and he had migrated at six with his parents, a Mexican father and a Guatemalan mother who had met in Mexico City and brought the two boys to the United States. So Alex and his brother grew up in a Chicago neighborhood. The family later had an American-born daughter. Alex was a very quiet and shy kid, um, but we noticed very soon that Alex was talented. He was a very incredible drawer. So we had talent for the arts. So over the years, um, we did what we could to support this talent. So we bought sketch pads and paints and, and chalks. We enrolled Alex in, in we paid for tuition for Alex to enroll in arts classes. Uh, by the time he was in eighth grade, Alex had uh, been part of three major murals in his community. And we thought, wow, this is, this is great. This young man is really going to 
going to go somewhere. So we, we had long conversations with his parents um, and wanted to, put, to, to move Alex in the direction of a private art school in his community. So we did all the hard work of, of helping the parents to understand that Alex would still um, uh, take classes in math and, and, and English and, and, and history and would have all the regular subjects. But this school would allow him the opportunity to really, to really, really blossom as an artist. So parents are on board. The community did, did an amazing job of fundraising um, to be able to pay for first year tuition for Alex um, at this private school. And so Alex was really excited. His parents were on board. He saw a really bright future ahead of him. Um, and so he gets his application. Gets his application for the school. He takes it home. He starts filling out the application. Very soon on the application, the upper right corner of the application was a space for nine digits. So can you guess the, the nine digits is social security anyway? Um, he had never dealt with this before, and so he asked his mom. He said, "Mom, can you get out my paperwork? I need to fill out my application." His mom had a very difficult conversation with him of informing him that he didn't in fact have a social security number. Um, that he didn't have legal status in the United States. Um, his parents had migrated the, uh, to the U.S. in the wake of the last legalization in 1986. Um, they had seen members from their community become legalized from this earlier legalization, and they thought, as his mom said to Alex, we thought that by the, the, the time this was an issue for you and your brother, we, we, we assumed we'd have your papers here as people in the community. But they did. So Alex was really confused and frustrated, disappointed. We called together a group of folks from the community and thought, well, the best approach here would be to, to go to the school um, and to really plead his case. And so we did just that. We brought his portfolio, sent his portfolio down, met with the administrators and said, look, so looking through this, we, we we're pretty sure that he has what it takes to be competitive for this school. So we were asked a few questions. So are you telling us that this kid is illegal? That he's an illegal immigrant? I said, well, yeah, he's, he is undocumented. He doesn't have legal status in this country. Conversation was stopped abruptly um, as officials from the school said, well, as an illegal immigrant, we're sorry, but we can't admit him to our school. So as you can imagine, Alex goes from very high hopes to his neighborhood high school. Wells Community Academy in Chicago, like many other rural, urban, and, and also rural schools, at the time completion rate for freshmen was about 50%. So in the US, oftentimes in the first day of the school, there's a look to your right, look to your left. Chances are one of, one of these is not going to be uh, it's not going to finish school. In some of these public schools, look look one way, chances are one of the two of you is not going to finish. Alex began school, um, and during his first semester, he realized that he could not take driver's education. As an undocumented immigrant in the state of Illinois, he did not have access to a driver's license. Right? His friends were going out after school playing video games, and he wanted to be a part of that. He knew his parents were poor, and he couldn't ask them every day for money, so he wanted to get a job. He also realized that as an undocumented immigrant, he could not take a job. So one by one by one, barriers were erected in front of Alex's path for the first time in his life. 
Granted, he was well aware of his parents' uh, issues of poverty uh, and his parents' own uh, immigration status restraints, but for him, as a 15-year-old, this is the first time in his young life that he had to deal with some of these exclusions. Much more to come. I'm, I'm sad to say the story doesn't have a, a, a cheerful ending. Back to the gray day here. Alex didn't make it past his first semester. Um, fast forward a couple of years, and I find myself in Los Angeles, in um, southern part of, of the five-county LA metro area, in a, a city called Santa Ana, California. Santa Ana is 92%. Santa Ana school district is 92% Latino, um, largely immigrant, um, high 80% of free reduced lunch, meaning large concentrations of uh, undocumented families in intense poverty. And I start may meeting many of the same young people with very similar stories. Had come to the United States at early ages, six months, two years old, five years old, had grown up in the United States in American schools. Right? But at around 15, 16, 17 years old, started experiencing the constraints of their own immigration status. These are the broader context that I want to kind of begin my formal presentation. So out of these contexts, I started asking questions. I'm really interested in this broad question of what happens to undocumented immigrant youth as they make these critical transitions through adolescence and young adulthood. If we look at the bigger picture, um, today they're upwards of 11.1, 11.5 million uh, people living in undocumented residency in the United States. Of that larger population, Almost 19% has been in the United States since childhood. So 2.1 million, roughly, have been in the US since 15 or below. Uh, about a million of those are now adults, and another 1.1, 1.5 million are children. So these young people, what uh, sociologists refer to as the 1.5 generation, right, those who straddle the uh, adult migrant population and the American-born second generation. These young people are, as some have referred to, as invisible victims of immigration restriction. And so what I mean by that in the United States context um, is that starting, uh, I mentioned the, the, the 1986 legalization. 1986 legalization accelerated a process uh, by which the United States started fortifying efforts along the border and in the interior, right? Um, and on the, on the border, what happened was that long-time circular migration patterns, whereby migrants left families of, of origin and their children in their, 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 their countries of origin, their families including their children in their countries of origin, to migrate to the United States seasonally, work a few months at a time, and go back, is that with the huge beef up of the border, right, so we're invested, investing more money on our southern border. Today we're even talking about drones on the border. Right? Increased number of agents and a longer and taller fence. As a result, it became a lot more costly, a lot more difficult, and a lot more dangerous to cross. Right? Labor demand did, certainly didn't slow down and didn't slow down until 2007, 2008. But what changed were the auspices under which people came to the United States. 
because it became because it become a lot more costly, dangerous, and difficult to cross. Right? Migrants brought their families with, them. and so we see from the late 1980s through the early 2000s right, is a the growth of a large settled undocumented population. Um, and, and, a, and a group of children, a large, significant number of children who would grow up in the United States without uh, legal immigration status. So these young people are growing up amid, today, amid some very hostile context. Uh, in the last several years, under the Obama administration, the United States has deported upwards of 1.5 million people. Right? Is that over the last several years, the rights of non-citizens have shrunk at the same time that enforcement efforts have picked up. Right? Sowing fear in migrant communities such that uh, taking a walk through the park, waiting for a bus can result in arrest, detention, and deportation. So today largely I want to uh, zero in on a, a couple of questions from this larger project. One. Um, how do school practices mediate the barriers associated with the constraints of undocumented status, and what are the limits of school? Moving back to children. And so these young people face a, a, a critical dilemma. 1982, the Supreme Court ruled in Plyler versus Doe that states could not deny undocumented children the right to a K-12 through education. As a result, tens of thousands of undocumented children move through the school system each year. Plyler's reach was very limited in that Plyler didn't address school beyond K through 12 and didn't address life outside of the school. So as a result, as undocumented children can receive an education, they can't work, they can't drive in most states, um, they can't vote, they can't travel outside the country and can be deported at any time. So while our laws treat children and adults very differently, they don't account for the continuity of children moving into uh, adult lives. These young people, as I mentioned before, uncomfortably straddle spaces of belonging um, and illegality. So in order to, to think about this, this particular population, I draw on a few theoretical strands. Scholars like Professor De Genova, Susan Coutine, and others have, um, have, have really helped us to think beyond the kind of traditional way of studying immigrant populations um, to zero in on the ways in which our laws narrowly circumscribe everyday life. Um, and worlds. For young people, as I, as I want to think about the kind of unique contours that exist for young people, while, um, as I mentioned before, while the context over the last several years, the immigration context have, have really heightened and, and have really uh, resulted in untenable circumstances, immigrant youth have also experienced belonging. Um, and notably, again, through the public school system. But as decades of scholarship on education have, have come to the conclusion that schools structure both belonging and exclusion, 
right, is that um, I'll get into some of the empirical data and look at kind of the realities of Los Angeles public schools. But and as increasingly more of these young people have moved into uh, adult experiences, uh, scholars have started studying their transitions to adulthood. Um, this transition to adulthood period, uh, many scholars have argued, has changed dramatically because of because of changes in the economy, changes in, in, in cultural beliefs, to where it's taking a lot longer to move through to achieve adult milestones, and that young people are delaying this transition uh, to marriage and work, work by investing in further education. But for poor families and many immigrant families, the lack of resources is really challenging this, and many young people are growing up without the ability to kind of delay role stress. So my study, and I, I won't spend too much time in it, my study, I, I'm, I'm wrapping up 10 years uh, of following a group of young people, 150 young adults, um, when they started were between the ages of, of 18 and, and 34. Um, and this study is over the five-county LA metropolitan area and um, looks at a group of I call college-goers, a group of very high achievers, and then a group of young people who exited school at or before high school. And I want to share some of those findings in the time that I have left. So as these, these young people move through late adolescence, they move from spaces of belonging to rejection, from inclusion to exclusion, from a de facto legal right to illegal in the majority. So here's a guy named Rodolfo. Um, his friends call him Rudy. And, and Rudy's story is really very, very similar to, to what I described with Alex before. And so Rudy's talking about this, this experience, and a lot of people have revoked kind of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream, there's a, the, the Dream Act, uh, or even Langston Hughes' Dream Deferred. But, but how Rudy really powerfully described this process was like waking up to a nightmare. He says, well, you know what? I never actually felt like I wasn't born here. Because when I came here, I was like 10 and a half. I went to school. I learned the language. But I first felt like I was really out of place when I graduated from high school, when I tried to get a job. So that's why I was that. He said, because I didn't have a social security number. Well, I didn't even know. I mean, I didn't even know what it meant. You know, social security, legal, illegal. I didn't know what that was. I asked my mom, and she said, it's in the process. In the process. I didn't know what that meant. I don't know why she would tell us that. So for Rudy and Alex and others that I talked to, dozens of others that I've talked to, because of the unique ways in which their law, their early lives were shaped, didn't have an awareness of this status. So I can't say on the whole, all of my, all the young people that I've talked to didn't have awareness. Many of them had an idea, right? Had a notion that they didn't have have legal status, and, and many of them were told by their parents, but a lot of this realization was not salient, right, until matched up with issues or experiences of exclusion later on. Right? And so here's Esperanza, and for Spanish speakers in the group, the name is, is not without irony. Um, Esperanza means hope. She says, everyone was so excited. My friend got into Stanford, and another was going to UCLA. I didn't say anything. I felt terrible. There wasn't in-state tuition at the time. In California, undocumented immigrants can, can go to college at in-state rates. And I didn't know what to do. I really had no idea what I was going to do. They asked, they asked me where I was going to go. 
I didn't want to go into the whole undocumented thing. So I told them I was going to community college to save money. They couldn't believe it. I mean, Stanford was giving them this much, and UCLA was giving them this much. I should be able to get financial aid, and besides, I shouldn't be going to community college. You should be with us. Right? They said. I didn't want to say anything, but I felt really bad. They were all happy and hugging each other, but I couldn't share in their excitement. I felt I had to hide. So here Esperanza is, and with her group of friends, feeling for most of her life she was part of an inner circle. <clears throat> but here she is later on feeling like she's on the outside looking in. She couldn't share their excitement. Right? She was not part of the group. I want to skip ahead. And so what I want to do is to, to very quickly, kind of graphically, show what I call this transition to illegality. So moving from this kind of protected status um, to these transitions to adults, right? working, driving, financial aid, um, even joining friends later on after work for a drink becomes very difficult. Succession of blocked opportunities, fear, stigma, change social, social patterns, forced decisions on a day-to-day -day basis about whether to reveal or conceal. Many of these young people experience a withdrawal because they're moving into a status and identity that is highly stigmatized, right? That of the undocumented immigrant, right? And so many of these young people live in lives where, you know, their everyday lives where their status issues are a secret. Right? They keep secrets to even some of their closest friends. Right? And one thing that I didn't expect early on, but I, but I found out almost to the person of those that I talked to, is that a lot of this stress becomes manifested in kind of physical, mental, and emotional symptoms. A lot of the young people that I talked to described trouble getting out of bed, sleeping problems, eating problems, right? Um, stress, anxiety, ulcers, thoughts of suicide, attempted suicide, right? Is that living in these narrowly conscribed worlds had really, in, in a lot of ways, really stressed them out. But before I paint a really gray cloud, I want to look at kind of these, these important mechanisms, and I want to really problematize kind of these issues of exclusion and inclusion, right? Is that for many of these, what I call early exiters, who, did, who didn't have the benefit of smaller class sizes uh, and teachers who really cared for them. Remember, the context here is Los Angeles public schools, one of the biggest public school systems in the country, right? very large public schools. Um, schools like Belmont High School, where 5,400 students attend. Schools where, in classrooms, in classrooms, many of the teacher-to-student ratios are upwards of 1 to 25, 1 to 30, even 1 to 40 where the counselor to student ratios are of the highest in the country, one to 950, one counselor to 950 students. So in many places where young people don't get a visit college counselor until late in their junior year, earlier in the senior year, what happens if you're not part of a, uh, a higher track class, an honors class, an AP class? What happens if you're not tracked for success? is that many of these young people sit in classes where their teachers don't know their names and they get very little help and attention. Right? And going through a very traumatic time in their lives where they don't have relationships with adults. Right? So as a result, negative school experiences coupled with families who in many, in most instances, don't have 
post-secondary experience, right? And so as a result, many of these young people end up falling through the cracks, exiting school early, and entering into this precarious adult world at 17, 18 years old, um, and having to relearn and retool. As a result, um, little trust in adults, daily contact with their legal limitations, and forced underground. But for many of these college-goers, popularly, now popularly known as dreamers, right, these young people who, who've done very well, for many of them, they've done very well because of sources of, of support in their, in their lives. So almost all of the young people in this category that I talked to could name two, three, four mentors in their lives. So when, at 15, 16, 17 years old, when they started experiencing a lot of the exclusions that they would they would later that would later characterize their everyday lives, they're able to draw on those relationships to talk to teachers, to talk to counselors, to get help mobilized for their situation. Right? As a result, many of them were able to secure money for, for college, were able to move seamlessly, um, form positive networks, developing uh, a strong sense of belonging and acquire the tools needed to succeed. So I want to move ahead. I'm, I'm very short on time, but what I want to talk, talk about, so I want to share that, so in the kind of middle transition among these young people, we see what's <coughs> happening with these college goers, many of them able to successfully move on to college and, and experience some upward mobility within the school system, and, and many of the early exiters, very early on at 16, 17, 18 years old, starting to work and starting to have everyday contact with their legal limitations, um, stressed out because they've got to drive to get to work or, or to take kids to, to daycare, um, experiencing jobs that have very little security, moving in and out of very bad, uh, grueling jobs. Um, and for many of these young people over time, they must learn to be illegal, must learn to live this undocumented adult life. And so here's Oscar, he says, I never thought I would have to do physical labor. It's really tough. I come home from work tired every day. I don't have a life. I don't do anything and now I have back problems. I've tried to get something better, but I'm limited by my situation. Oscar has moved in and out of the cycle of low-wage crap jobs. Right? Similarly, Jeanette, Jeanette says, I can't believe this is my life. When I was in school, I never thought I'd be doing this. I thought I'd have a lot better job. It's really hard, you know. I make beds, I clean toilets, and the sad thing is when I get paid. I work this hard for nothing. Look at me. I'm only 24 years old and I look so old. So back to Esperanza. We, we, I shared a little bit of her story earlier. Undocumented status for, for many of my my respondents emerges as this master status, illegal illegality as a master status. Of the college goers that I interviewed, um, 31 of them have moved through college, have gotten college degrees. Uh, nine of those have gone on to graduate school in law programs, um, in social work, in public health. None of those, until last summer, none of those young men and women were in Career, a career path that matched their educational training or credentials. In fact, many of them found themselves in the same sort of occupations as their parents. Right? Working in factories, um, cleaning offices, uh, working in restaurants. 
And so here's Esperanza. And I ta- Esperanza I've known for the last 10 years. And I've been following her since she started school. And, and she's been out of school for several years now. And here she is talking about her experience. She said, the people working at those places, like the, like the cooks and the cashiers, they're all really young and I feel really old. Like, what am I doing here if they're all like 16, 17 years old? The others are like the senoras who are 35. They dropped out of school, but because they have little kids, they're still working at the restaurant. Thinking about that, it makes me feel so stupid. And the factories, too, they ask me, ¿Qué estás haciendo aquí? What are you doing here? You can speak English. You graduated from high school. You can work anywhere. Esperanza, her biggest accomplishment to date is her college graduation. That makes her parents the most proud of her. In order, she told me, in order to apply to these kinds of jobs, these factory jobs, she leaves her, her education offering application. And she's closed the circle and she's really become much like her parents, an undocumented adult immigrant. So as a, so in conclusion, the stories of these young people, their, their lives, their experience really underscore the, this interaction in, in late adolescence and this real kind of, I, I'd say, collision between these legal, cultural, and developmental contexts creates a dramatic shift in experience. But key mechanisms within community institutions, most notably like the public school system, can mediate the the effects of undocumented status. Again, the idea that undocumented status is not kind of this natural fixed thing, that it's it's fluid and it's really context-specific. But without any kind of legalization for these young people, while a great deal of divergence happens in the earlier transitions period, right, periods, over time their trajectories converge. Right? So these processes are rendering our measures, our kind of traditional sociological measures of intergenerational mobility by educational progress irrelevant. Right? By breaking this assumed link between educational attainment and material psychological outcomes after school. And then finally, very quickly, so delayed or blocked mobility caused by a lack of legal status. It's leveling educational motivations. It's stressing parent-child relationships. It's contradicting our notions of small c citizenship and creating the conditions for a new underclass. What is happening for a, a group, a sizable group of young people, those who've been, who've grown up and have been educated in the United States, those who have um, grown up to the to Barney and the Power Rangers, who've dated, who've gone to prom, um, who've experienced life in, in very similar ways to their American-born peers, right? They find find illegality to be this master status. As their friends are taking first jobs, as their friends are uh, entering college, um, as their friends are beginning to drive, start careers, dating. Um, meeting friends for drinks after work, many of them must stay in the same place. Right? So, so, so we ask, really, what are, what are the consequences of these young people learning to be legal? Thank you. Thank you.